Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit you here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face, prayed, saying, O my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep. said to Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter and not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and said to them, Sleep on now, take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Lord, as we look into this very precious section of Scripture this morning, it's our prayer that you would open our eyes to see this moment in your life. What an awful moment it was. What a difficult moment it was. And help us, Lord, to understand to some degree all that you've endured for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Do you, do you have a place that you love to go to when you want to be alone? Uh, when you want to gather your thoughts, when you want to maybe meditate, think about something, try to figure a problem out? Probably everybody in this room has a place like that. And if you were to think of your last moments, the last moments that you were going to be spending on this earth, there's, I have a pretty good idea that that's probably the place you'd want to be. You wouldn't want to be in some hospital room somewhere. Probably wouldn't want to be in any nursing facility. I don't know where your place may be. Maybe your place is in a chair. Maybe your place is on your back porch or maybe your front porch. Maybe your place is in your recliner. Or maybe it's at your living room table just as the sun comes through the kitchen window there. And maybe it's even a spot in the woods. Maybe a spot on the lake. But most of us have a place where we like to go when we want to be alone. Well, Jesus had a place like that. And it was a place called Gethsemane. The word means oil press. It was a garden surrounded by a wall, most likely protected because a business took place inside that garden. Now, they took olives and they separated the oil from the olives in that, in that place. And evidently, Jesus knew the guy who owned this business, knew the guy who owned this garden. And oftentimes, the Bible says in John's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 2, Jesus would go there to pray. When he wanted to be alone, when he wanted to be by himself, when he wanted to be in a place where he could pray, he went to a garden called Gethsemane. Now Judas knows about this. Last week, you remember, I said that, that, that Jesus had been a little bit uh, a shadow, a shadowy about where he was going to have the Last Supper with the disciples because his time had not yet come. It wasn't time for him to be arrested yet. 
But now his time has come and he is very aware that Judas knows where this garden is because many times Judas himself has been to Jesus with this garden. And Jesus knew when he went there he would be a sitting duck. He knew that Judas would go and tell the religious leaders, Ah, I can tell you exactly where he is. He's where he always is when we come to this area. He's in the garden called Gethsemane. And this is the place that Jesus chooses to be the last moments of his freedom. The place where he would be arrested. Now it had been dark for some time. As I said, Judas had already went out. He had already told the religious leaders that he was going to bring them to Jesus so Jesus could be arrested. But Jesus left eight of the disciples at the gate of the garden and he brings Peter, James, and John with him a little further into the garden. And then he separates himself from even those three. Luke said he went about as far from those three as you can, those three as you can throw a rock. Said he went a stone's throw. And so this morning we're going to look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and we're going to learn from Him. And I want to share with you some lessons. Some lessons from Gethsemane. And the first lesson I want you to see here is Jesus wants us to witness His wrestling with the Father. Jesus wants us to witness His wrestling with the Father. You know, I don't know about you, but when I'm in my private prayer time, I want the door closed. There are things that I don't want people to hear that I'm saying to God. Amen? Maybe things I'm confessing. Maybe things I'm worried about. Maybe things I'm struggling with that I don't want anybody to hear but me and God. But on this occasion, Jesus invites us into His prayer closet. He wants all of us to see Him here. And we may ask the question, well, why? You know, Jesus told us when we pray, go into the closet and close the door so no one will see you. Well, there's great theological reasons that Jesus wants us in the prayer closet with Him. He wants us to see a few things, and I want to show them to you here. And the first thing He wants us to see is this. He wants us to, see, to witness Him in His prayer closet that we might understand His humanity. That we might understand His humanity. There's two dangers in understanding who Christ is. There are some people who emphasize the deity, the deity of Christ and, and they say, well, Jesus is God. And, they, and then they forget, well, well, He's not man then. We say, well, how in the world could, could God wrestle with the will of God? How in the world could God feel pain? How in the world could, could God uh, feel sorrow? How could God pray? And so maybe we're just focused on the humanity of Christ and we're just thinking of all those things. And, and then when we focus on the deity of, deity of Christ, we think, well, He wasn't really in pain or He wasn't really experiencing sorrow because He was God. He really couldn't have been agonizing in prayer. I want you to understand what is very difficult for us to comprehend that Jesus was 100% God and Jesus was 100% man is on full display here. And even though it's hard for us to understand it, and even though it's hard for us to comprehend it, we should never dismiss it. It's the mystery of the incarnation. It's God, fully man, fully God, Christ coming to the earth. That's what Scripture teaches. And why did He become man? He became man so He could experience everything humanity experiences and that as the representative of mankind, He could pay the sin debt that men owed. Now I want you to think about this. Those of you who really study the Bible, this is going to be interesting to you. There was another time Jesus took Peter, James, and John to a place alone. You remember that? It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. And on that mountain, what happened? Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured in all of His glory. 
They saw Him much like He would look on the day that you and I see Him when He returns. The Bible says He was shining like the sun in all of its strength. And they were so overcome with the glory of Jesus that they didn't want to leave that mountain. They said, hey, let's just build an altar. We'll just stay right here. And when they left, they knew He was divine. But you see, this second time that He takes them to be with Him alone, what is He showing them? He's showing them His humanity. And so these two issues, when He took Peter, James, and John with Him, are a beautiful thing because in one sense, He says, I want you to understand that I'm more than man. I am God in the flesh. But here at Gethsemane, He says, I want you to also understand that I'm 100% human too. He didn't appear to be human. He was human. You see, Jesus wanted them to see both. His divinity and His humanity. And He wants us to see both as well. And that's why we get a glimpse into the prayer closet of Jesus here. So that when looking at Him in Gethsemane, we can say, man, we see His humanity. Indeed, He did become man. The second reason we're invited into His prayer closet is that we might appreciate His willingness. That we might appreciate His willingness. Jesus' submission to the Father's will, church, did not come from any type of obligation. Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. It would not have been a sin had Jesus said, I'm not going to the cross. He shows us that in verse 53. He said, look, if I called upon my Father right now, I would have legions of angels who would come to my rescue. And again, this is in the deep, deep places of theology, but there's this eternal agreement in the Godhead that the Father would be the one who chose us to salvation, that the Spirit would be the one who sealed our salvation, but that the Son would be the one who bought our salvation. And in eternity past, Jesus Christ agreed in the midst of the Godhead before time ever began, before anyone was ever created, that He would be the one who would come to earth and die on the cross for the sins of the world. It's nothing He has to do, but it's something He's willing to do. And so we see into His prayer closet that we might see His humanity. We see into His prayer closet that we might appreciate His willingness. And then thirdly... We get a glimpse into His prayer closet that we might fear the cup. And He's talking about this cup here, this cup that He wants to pass from Him, and there's dread there. And so obviously the question is, well, what's in the cup? Now remember, last week He just drank from a cup, and and it was when when He participated in the Lord's Supper with the disciples. So He just drank a cup with them, but now He's going to drink a cup for them. And the cup that He's about to drink contains the punishment for the sins of the world. Many times in the Old Testament, I'm not going to list them all, but many times in the Old Testament, the punishment of God is referred to a cup that people drink. Psalm 75 in verse 8 says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And so the idea there is is the punishment of God is like a cup that that humanity is forced to drink. And it's the punishment of God. And Christ said He takes this cup and Christ is going to drink it down to the dregs. What is dregs? It's all that stuff that settles on the bottom. If you have coffee, maybe it's the coffee grounds at the bottom. If you have tea, maybe it's the tea leaves at the bottom. If you're having an Alka-Seltzer, it's that film at the bottom. Amen? 
that nobody ever drinks down. But here we see Christ will drink down this cup. All of it. And so as we look at this first point, I want to ask you a question, friend. Do you understand that God became man to purchase our salvation? And that He was under no obligation to save us. And that God allowed us to enter the prayer closet of Jesus here so we could see how terrible it would be if you and I had had to drink that cup ourselves. Now the second thing I want you to see in this text is Jesus faced unparalleled grief. The Bible describes this grief. Matthew says that he was exceedingly sorrowful, says he was very heavy. Luke says that he was in agony, that he was sweating profusely. He said that his sweat was like great drops of blood. Now that could mean that he was under such stress that some of his capillaries in his forehead had burst, and that is a medical condition that actually happens. And that bleeding through his pores was actually sweat mixed with blood. Or it could refer to just how thick the sweat was that was coming off of his body. But Matthew says Jesus said he was so sorrowful. Look at what he says there. He says he was so sorrowful that he was sorrowful unto death. Now that doesn't mean he was sorry he was going to die. It means that he was so overwhelmed with sorrow. The sorrow was so great that it felt as if it was going to kill him. There was so much sorrow in his heart that if he felt as if it was going to kill him. And I'll tell you this, if you and I had experienced the amount of sorrow that the man of sorrows did on this day, it would have killed us. Would have killed any lesser man. In other words, you have never seen a person this broken hearted. In all the world, all that you've seen in this world, church, all the broken-hearted people you've seen, you've never seen a person that was as broken-hearted as Jesus Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you say, well, why such grief? Why did He have so much grief? Well, you know why? Because of omniscience. Now, what is omniscience? Omniscience is when you know everything. And Jesus knew everything. He could read the hearts of people, couldn't He? He knew the future. He had already told them, hey... In just a little while, you know, the Romans are going to come in here and destroy the temple. Jesus knew the future. But see, sometimes knowing the future doesn't ease your pain. Some of us think, well, I'll tell you, I'd like to know what's going to happen in the next year. I got got some news for you. I don't think you'd like to know that. Because some of us could not handle the amount of grief we would experience if we knew what was going to happen in the next year of our life. Some of you just think about it. If it just, uh, your last year has been awful. You've seen all types of terrible things. But if you'd known a year beforehand, guess what? You'd have had double the grief. And here Jesus, knowing what's about to happen to Him, is suffering greatly. Now what is going to happen to Him? Well, church, He's going to suffer for the sins of the world. Do you know the only person who could ever begin to imagine... The amount of grief that Jesus was experiencing would be a person who is in hell right now. You remember Lazarus and the rich man? Remember the rich man, he went to hell and he was begging Abraham. He said, send someone to my brothers and please tell them they don't want to come to this place. Remember that in Luke chapter 16? He 
He's the only guy that I could think of that maybe could a little bit be understanding of the grief that Jesus was going through. So if you could just grab a handful of people out of hell and tell them what's about to happen to Jesus, that's the only people who could begin to understand the pain that Jesus is about to experience. And Jesus fully knew that. You see, Jesus is facing more than death, church. His concern here, his his wrestling with the Father's will is not about the beatings He's going to go through. It's not about the crown of thorns that's going to be put on His head. It's not about the mockery. It's not about the whip. It's not about the nails in His hands and in His feet. This is about what happens between 12 p.m. and 3 p.m. on Friday. You see, too often when we think about the sufferings of Jesus, what we think about is what happened to His body. But you know what the book of Isaiah says? Isaiah says, It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He has put Him to grief. When thou shalt make His soul an offering for sin. You see, if all Jesus was facing was some physical death, then He really wouldn't look too brave here. You would look at Jesus and say, Jesus, you know, other people have faced death better than you have. You're in this garden. You're pacing back and forth. You're saying, oh, I don't want this to happen. But there have been many soldiers who died for their country and didn't act like that. Many martyrs who died for their cause and didn't act like that. Many criminals have gone to a gas chamber or gone to an electric chair or gone to a lethal injection gurney. And they they had perfect peace. And so if it's just physical death that Jesus is going through, then Jesus is not the bravest person that ever lived. The reason there's so much anxiety in Jesus' church is He knows that He's about to experience the pain of hell for three hours. From 12 to 3, the pain of hell for three hours. That's why He's sweating profusely. That's why He's in agony. That's why He's in sorrow. He's not just dying on the cross. See, the cross is the altar. And the Father is going to pour His judgment out upon Him from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock on Passover. And in the body of Jesus, Jesus will experience the pains of a million hells. That's why Jesus is pacing back and forth. That's why he's having such sorrow. He feels like he's about to die. That's why he has so much anxiety in him right now. Now, how how do people face death peacefully? Because there are people who face death and there's there's no problem with it. Well, some people face death peacefully because some are ignorant. In other words, they don't understand their loss. Maybe they don't even believe in a place called hell. And you know, there's an old saying, ignorance is bliss, right? And so some people face death very peacefully simply because they don't believe or don't understand what happens to a person when they die. And then other people are able to face death peacefully because they have faith in Christ. You know that Jesus took your cup. You know that Jesus drank it Himself. And every time we observe the Lord's Supper like last week, we celebrate that. You see, for the Christian, there's the cup that Christ drank with us, verses 27 and 28. And then there's the cup that Christ drank for us. The cup of the new covenant is full, church. The cup of the new covenant is running over. But the cup of God's wrath is empty. And I'll tell you what, church, thank God for the empty cup. 
Thank God for the empty cup. The reason that the believer in Christ is able to die with such peace and perhaps even a smile on his or her face is very simple. They know there's an empty cup when it comes to the wrath of God. Christ has taken it. And the martyr for Christ to stand strong, even if his head's on a chopping block, didn't die a better death than Jesus. You can't look at that person and say, oh, look, they weren't worried like Jesus was. No, the reason they have hope and the reason that they were able to die with the peace that they die with is because they know there's nothing waiting for them as far as the judgment of God goes because Christ has taken it. He's taken it. The third thing I want you to see here is Jesus prays with, with great passion. Now, the disciples were supposed to be praying with Him. Jesus told them over and over, watch and pray, watch and pray, watch and pray. Every time He came back to check on them, what were they doing? Well, they were asleep. Luke 22 says they were sleeping because they were so sad. Sometimes you can be so depressed, that's all you want to do, isn't it? It's just sleep. No excuse, but that's what Luke says. Jesus told him, watch and pray. It's very clear when you read this portion of Scripture that Jesus cares more for them than, he, than they care for Him. Do you know the only disciple that's awake is Judas. He's the only one awake, y'all. You know why? Because the devil never sleeps. The devil never takes a day off. He's always busy. Look at verse 40. He calls Peter out. He says, Peter, you couldn't stay awake for an hour? And Peter just told him in verse 33, he said, I'll never deny you. He told him in verse 35, I'll die for you. So Peter says, I won't deny you. He says, I'll, I'll die for you. But look here, he won't even pray for him. Now, now watch out, Baptist. Let's not be too judgmental. Let's not be too judgmental. A lot of Baptists can't stay awake for an hour of preaching. Much less an hour of praying. Amen? I remember one time we said, you know, we're gonna, the first Wednesday of each month, we're going, to, we're, we're going to just pray during that service. Get all our people together. We're going to pray. Just come down the altar and pray. Pray at your pew. We're just going to pray for the people in our church. Pray for... Uh, lost people, sick people, pray for our church ministries. No, it wasn't here at this church, so relax, okay? And I remember we had just started doing that, and I was so excited about that. Seeing God do a great work in our church through prayer. And I was up here praying, and not here at this church, but I was up in the pulpit, and I was praying out loud, and I promise you, this is what I heard. Just as loud. They weren't even mocked up. Amen? It was just like that. What can you do? Amen? You just keep praying. And that's where they were. They've been told to pray, but they went to sleep. They're just not as concerned about Jesus as He's concerned about them. He keeps going back to check on them. Listen to me, there's never a time when God has not thought of you. You ever thought about that? There's never been a time when God, even when we're lazy, even when we're self-centered, even when we're disobedient, Christ thinks of us. 
Now, Jesus prayed like no other person has ever or will ever. Jesus prayed like no other person has ever or will ever. When you look at His prayer, it's a personal prayer. I mean, He, he was by Himself. He wasn't doing this as an example like the disciples' prayer or the Lord's prayer, whatever you want to call it. He wasn't saying pray like this. This is His prayer. This prayer meant something. But it was also a prostrate prayer. In other words, Luke says he started on his knees, but Matthew says he ended up on his face. So picture that in your mind. Here you've got Jesus, and he's laying on the dirt. On the dirt, face down. And he's praying. It's a personal prayer. It's a prostrate prayer. It's a pitiful prayer. He's saying, Lord, if there's any other way we can do it, let's do it that way. Father, if if there's another cup, if if there's any way I can let this cup pass from me, let's let's do it that way. Which, by the way, imagine the sorrow that the Father felt even here in this prayer. And, And He basically prayed the same prayer three different times, but every time the good news is He submitted to the cross, Thy will be done. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. And it was a passionate prayer. He prayed so earnestly. That he was sweating profusely. Hebrews 5 7 says this. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Do you hear that? With loud cries and tears, he prayed. You know, when they came to arrest Jesus, he looked like he'd been in a war. And all he'd been doing was praying. Think about that. When they came to arrest Jesus, he looked like he'd been in a war. Covered in sweat. Perhaps even blood on his face. Wore out and tired. Felt like he was almost dead. And the only thing he'd been doing was praying. Man, that's a passionate prayer, isn't it? You know, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he also prayed on the cross of Calvary, didn't he? And he prayed for us. You know, the Bible says Jesus is is our high priest. Hebrews 7.25 says he's always praying for us. Always making intercession for us. Now, Jesus' prayer reminds us of of some things. It reminds us of some things. The first one is this. Everybody needs to pray. I mean, buddy, if Jesus needed to pray, I need to pray, right? There's not a person in this room that doesn't need to pray. We all need prayer, that's true, but we all need to pray. We should all pray. That's the first lesson, and we should pray with anguish. And the second lesson is this. Sometimes we pray the same prayer over and over, and that's okay. Jesus did the same exact prayer three times here. And there are times in your life and my life when we pray for the same thing. And that's okay. We just keep praying for the same thing over and over. And then the third thing is this. And this is probably the most difficult for us to understand. Sometimes our most passionate prayers are answered with no. Amen? Sometimes our most passionate prayers are answered with no. And I know it is hard to hear that answer. Especially when it's your loved one perhaps who's laying there in that hospital bed and you're praying that God heals them and you're praying that God gives them back to you. You're praying that they return to some sense of normalcy in their life and you're just begging God, Lord, I pray that you would bring them back and the answer comes back no. That's hard to hear. 
But listen to me, church. Sometimes our most passionate prayers, the prayers that we have prayed over and over and over, will be answered with no. Because sometimes we're called to suffer. And sometimes our relief will not come until glory. And the last little lesson I get there from from Jesus' prayer time is we have to watch and protect our prayer time. You know, when you're by yourself, it may not be the best thing to pray with your eyes closed. Amen? Watch and pray. Right? It's hard to watch with your eyes closed, isn't it? Maybe times when you're in a group like this where closing your eyes is good to pray because you don't want to be distracted by things going on around you. But there are other times when you just pray to God with your eyes lifted up to the heavens. Oh Lord God, I need you. You know, it's hard to go to sleep when you're shouting to the Lord in prayer. Amen. It's hard to go to sleep whenever you're wrestling with the Lord in prayer. We have to watch and protect our prayer times. And the fourth thing that we see here, the final thing, is Jesus marches to His death with great courage. He tells the disciples in verse 45 that His, his time has come. Now notice He doesn't tell them to wake up and pray the third time He returns. He comes back, they're still asleep. But there's no need for Jesus to tell them to pray anymore because Judas is about to be there. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. These sinners are finally going to get their hands on Jesus. Man, they have wanted this for years. These religious leaders have dreamt of this moment for three years to get their hands on Jesus. And I'm sure that when they get their hands on Him, they think that they've accomplished something. They think, whoa, we finally fooled old Jesus. He made fools out of us for years in front of the people with His teaching and and with His correction. But now we've got Him. But listen to me, like I said last week, this is not their hour. This is not the Roman government's hour. This is not the devil's hour. This is Jesus' hour. Because we know that what happens to Jesus on that cross will bring glory to Him that will be made known throughout the whole world to all generations. Because the most glorious thing we think of when we think of Jesus Christ is the cross of Jesus Christ, don't we? We don't think of of shame, we think of glory. Because we know the whole story. That the cross was followed by the resurrection. And the resurrection made certain that you and I as sinners will be forgiven and that you and I will be resurrected and have a home in heaven ourselves. And so never think this was their hour. This was His hour. The time of His glory. And it happened at the precise time He wanted it to happen when He was done with His last solitude prayer time with the Father and it happened at the, in the precise manner that He wanted it to happen. He wanted it to happen at this time and He wanted it to happen in this way and that's how it happened. And notice that Jesus meets His enemies. He meets them. He tells the disciples, get up and follow Me. He even knows Judas is going to be with him. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. That's Judas. Now, if you question the courage of Jesus, all you have to look at is verse 46. No doubt he had anxiety when he thought of experiencing the pain of hell. But he isn't afraid of Judas. And he isn't afraid of the army that Judas is bringing with him. 
You know, Jesus told, told us, don't fear man who's able to destroy the body. He said, fear God, the one who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And that's what you see in this text. You see when He's wrestling with the Father over the punishment for the sins of the world. When God is going to punish, you see the anxiety there. But when it comes to Him dealing with, with Judas and this army He brings, there's no fear. He's not afraid of them at all. What He fears is what He told us to fear. Not man who kills the body, but God, the one who pours judgment out upon the soul. Now, I love the fact that, that Christ passed the test in the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ passed the test in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was in the wilderness in Matthew 4, He was tested on three different occasions by Satan. And He passed all three tests. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we have three different sessions of prayer. Now, it doesn't say specifically that Satan was there tempting him to give up, to quit. But we do know that Satan instigated all this when he entered Judas when they were having the Lord's Supper. But understand that Jesus passed the test that he had in the Garden here. You know, the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 that Jesus is the second Adam. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, Adam was the first representative of humanity. We're sinners because of Adam. That's what the Bible teaches. He was the first one. He represented us. Now we all inherit a sinful nature because of Adam. He was the first man, the first representative of humanity. What happened to Adam? Well, he was placed in a beautiful garden by God and given everything he needed. He wasn't left alone. He was given a helpmeet. He was tempted just one time by Satan and failed that test. He didn't cry out to God in prayer. He didn't encourage Eve to watch and pray. He left the garden because he was no longer worthy to be in the garden. He got kicked out of the garden. So our first representative, Adam, failed us. Therefore, we're born sinners. But now we have our second representative, Christ, who the Bible says is the second Adam. And here in our text, we see Him in a garden that grew from a ground that had already been cursed. Not a garden of paradise as Adam had, but a garden that had been cursed. We see that He had no Eve. He had no help meet. We see that He was tested by Satan for years and years and years and passed every single test, even the one in the garden. And we see that He prayed earnestly and we see that he left the garden here at the end in verse 46, not because he was a sinner, but he left the garden to atone for sinners. To pay the price that sinners owed. And because of his obedience, church, guess what? Because of his obedience, now you and I can be born again with a new nature and paradise can be restored to us. Adam left the garden with his head hung in defeat. Christ here marches out of the garden toward Judas, toward this army, but He marches with His head up, covered with sweat, been wrestling with the Father, filled with anxiety, no doubt, but He leaves the garden with His head up. He leaves the garden in victory. And if Satan thought he would make the second Adam do what he made the first Adam do, he was mistaken. Because this Adam meets him at the door. This Adam is going to crush his head. Church, thank God for Gethsemane. Thank God for Gethsemane because we learn lessons about ourselves and we learn lessons about Christ that are greatly needed. 
Now, this, this morning, if you're lost and you don't fear death, I want you to consider Jesus in Gethsemane. And if there's nothing after death, I want you to explain to me why Jesus was in such anxiety. Why Jesus was wrestling like He was. There's only one of two answers. One answer is, is this. He was just cowardly. And He did not die a very courageous death. Or number two, there was something facing Him greater than death. And dear friends, we know from the Bible what the truth is. There was something facing Him greater than death. The punishment of the sins of the world. And dear friend, if you don't know Christ today, that's waiting on you. And even if you're not concerned, and even if there's not anxiety filling your heart right now, it should be. Because there was never a greater man, never a stronger man than Jesus Christ. And he was overcome with such sorrow he thought he would die. And when you think about your death without Christ, dear friend, the same thing should happen to you. And I would say to you, come to Christ. Come to the one who died for you. Come to the one who drank your cup. Come in repentance and faith. And you'll be saved. Or perhaps you're like these disciples this morning. Perhaps you're just continually falling into sin. The flesh is weak. The Spirit is willing. And so perhaps you need to consider the prayer life of Christ in Gethsemane. Perhaps you need to say, Lord, I need to work on this. I need to be watching. I need to be praying because my flesh is taking over so often like these disciples. God, give me the strength to be a victorious Christian for Your glory and Your honor. Wherever you are, friend, I hope you'll meet Christ. Father, we love You. Father, we praise You and we thank You for this day.